Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, so good morning. I didn't introduce myself before. Let me do that now. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City Church. Uh, and we're doing a series just for these few weeks uh, talking about the coming, the coming Savior. And, and so it's really based around this question. I have a question that I would ask uh, for you to, to consider as we uh, talk this morning. If you're a Christian, if you're a person of faith, are you remembering your true citizenship? Are you, as you go throughout these days, are you, are you anchoring your life to your true citizenship? Because the key to getting through tumultuous times, standing firm, and even rejoicing, as the psalm yesterday called us to, keeping your calm, is to remember that your true citizenship is in heaven. We saw that from Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, this past Sunday. And there in that passage it says uh, that if you, if you can remember that your citizenship is in heaven, it can make you somewhat immune to the frenzy of things going on on the earth, especially things like this past week, because you're not looking to any earthly king or outcome for salvation, because you know just the fundamental theological truth that all Christians believe that salvation comes into the world from outside of the world. It's one of the most basic Christian doctrines. And so as we saw last week, we said salvation is not done by us, it's done for us. And as the scriptures begin to take shape, the idea begins to crystallize around the, the fact that God's redeeming of the whole world from sin and death would happen through a singular person, a savior figure, the Messiah in the Old Testament. Or as we looked at last week, the, the, the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head. And they're just image after image after image as you go throughout the Old Testament. That's what we're doing. We're looking at a few of those over these weeks. And so in the whole Old Testament, the people of God would be waiting for Messiah to come. And we are waiting, just like them, for the coming of the, the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Coming from heaven, bringing heaven with him. And that's what it means to live into your true citizenship. To put all of your hope for whatever happens on the earth in him and his coming. Now, Isaiah the prophet is where we are this morning. And Isaiah, so we've skipped quite a bit ahead from Genesis all the way to Isaiah, but Isaiah ministered to Judah, which was the part of the people of God in the south of the land of Israel, in a time when the people had lost their core moral identity. And his was a message of judgment for sins. And that judgment was coming in the form of military defeat and exile at the hand of the Babylonians, who were the ruling you know, nation of people at that time uh, in the world. And Isaiah talked about the fact that, they, that God was bringing the people into judgment, but he also, on the heels of that, talked about rescue. He said, you're going into exile, God's kicking you out of your land, but you're going to return, and there's going to be a restoration of your national life. But as Isaiah began to unfold exactly how that was going to happen, it was very clear that he saw that it would happen through the ministry of an individual and he gave that individual the name, the servant of the Lord. So he talked about the servant of the Lord. And there are a number of passages in Isaiah's prophecy called the servant songs, which are about this servant of the Lord. They are prophecies of salvation. And at the center of them is this figure, the servant, through whom it would all take place. Now, I picked this because of, of what Isaiah is doing here. Because, of course, in the rest of the Old Testament... The Messiah was expected to be a king. He was called the son of David, 
We're actually going to look at some of that next week. But before we get there, Isaiah comes and he says, no, I'm not, you know, he doesn't give him the title king. He says, no, he's going to be a servant, capital S, the servant. And the main lesson, the reason I think Isaiah does that is these servant songs are there to correct the wrong ideas that people had about what it meant for God to come with salvation. They had, a very, they had very kind of blinders on. They had a very clear expectation of what they thought it meant for the Lord to do that. They imagined it would signal the defeat of their political and military enemies. They thought of salvation in terms of their circumstances and not their sins. Basically. If I could boil it down. And so the most famous of the servant songs is the one that we printed for you. You'll see it in Isaiah chapter, excuse me, 52 and 53. It actually begins in verse 13 of chapter 52. It goes through the rest of chapter 53. And it offers a pretty severe correction to that expectation. Right? They said, no, our salvation is circumstances, not our sins. We're being saved from bad circumstances, not our sins. But here we see that we're called, they were called to put their hope not in a conquering king, but in the coming sin bearer. Because that's the really big deal. And so you'll see that's the title of the sermon this morning, The Coming Sin Bearer. And so let's read, uh, but only some of it for the sake of time, from Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, and we'll walk through this passage together in, in just a few brief moments. Okay, so let's, let's read. Hear the word of the Lord, beginning in Isaiah 52, uh, verses 13 and 14, and then Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. And it really is a remarkable word. Because of course it comes with such piercing clarity about things that Isaiah could not have foreseen himself. That would not happen for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus and his death upon the cross. Now, in Matthew's gospel, the angel of the Lord told Joseph of the baby that would be born, this promised Messiah who would finally come to marry his betrothed. It would be a miraculous conception from the Holy Spirit and not from man. And then the angel said this to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. He said, you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus is the form of the name Joshua, which means God saves. But the angel is explicit there. What is it that God is saving us from in Jesus? Not our circumstances. He's saving us from our sins. And it's a very simple but very important lesson. And one that might easily be forgotten, especially after a week like this past week. That the greatest threat that we all face, the thing that binds us together, the greatest threat we face is sin. The greatest evil is the evil within each one of us, or as it has been said, the, the, the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes or political parties, but right through every human heart. 
We don't need a change of circumstances nearly as much as we need to be changed. And we'd be, we'd be right to remember that. I mean, you might look back over the last few days and think we're in for some hard times, and you might be right. But Jesus juke, okay? Here's the Jesus juke. But the consequences of sin are death and hell. Way worse. Much worse. And so the root of all of the brokenness in the world is our broken relationship with God. And just, you know this, going out into your yard to do yard work, unless you pull the weed up by the root, it will come right back. So the only way to ultimately make the world right is to right the relationship between God and man. And that's what God has come to do. That's what Isaiah's servant was said to be coming to do, to pull evil out of the world by the root, by, by being a sin bearer. And so the story of God's rescue and the story that we get to rejoice in, as Jeff just reminded us a minute ago, the story of all who believe into Jesus, believe in Jesus, and the story we belong to is this. It's the story of the cross. The Oval Office is a subplot. But there's an impo- it's important but not ultimate. There's a truer story of what's happening in the world, and it's the story of the coming sin bearer. And so let's get into this and just look uh, at this text bit by bit here as we walk through chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah. And again, remember, the servant songs were meant to correct the wrong ideas the people of Israel had about salvation. So there's much here that can change our perspective about the goings-on in the world. The song is comprised of five stanzas of three verses each. And so you'll you just see it broken up that way easily. Now, all I have time to do today is to give you the main idea in each of those stanzas. And actually, I'm only going to talk about four of the five just for the sake of time. And so uh, let's get started and begin with the very first stanza. So this is verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52. And let's read them together again, or at least part of them. Listen to these words. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And you see, so the language is really strange and it kind of goes back and forth and can be hard to follow. But here's the lesson. Here's the main lesson. And it's this, victory often looks like defeat. Victory often looks like defeat. It says that the servant would act wisely. That word being successfully there, he would be high and lifted up. He would be victorious, ultimately. But at the same time, in the very next phrase, it says that those who looked at him were astonished because his appearance had become so disfigured that he didn't even look human. They were grossed out by him. And so our expectations are being corrected, as I said. And here's how they're being corrected. Success doesn't always look like success. Sometimes it looks like failure. Power doesn't always look like power. Sometimes it looks like weakness. They were expecting a conquering king. They got a suffering servant. And the temptation was to look at him and say, well, oh well, you know, he's obviously not the one that we've been waiting for, and to dismiss him. That's why they missed him. And it's why people still miss him. They, you know, all of Jesus' ministry, they, they, the, over and over again, the people tried to give him a throne, but he came for a cross. Because that's what we needed most. We needed him on the cross more than we needed him on the throne. Can I say that again? We needed him on the cross more than we needed him on the throne. And so God's ways in the world's, world can easily be mistaken. A lot of times. Victory often look, looks like defeat. But then in the second stanza, And here we begin in chapter 
53 verses 1 through 3, and this is not printed for you. Verse 3 is, but the other parts aren't. So just listen here to these words. He goes on to say, Who has believed what the Lord has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, and here we get the he, right? Now it's personified. He grew up before him like a young plant. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised, excuse me, and we esteemed him not. And here, the important lesson of these verses is just this, that the extraordinary often seems ordinary. The extraordinary often seems ordinary. This servant, it says there would be nothing extraordinary about him or attractive about him. In fact, it says he would be despised, and that word means dismissed. He would just be thought little of. He'd be like, eh, that guy's no big deal. And again, this is because the people that Isaiah was writing to were operating with a certain set of expectations. For them, salvation was glitz. It was pageantry. They expected the big show. And Isaiah is saying, knowing it's not going to be like that, the servant would come to do the work God had called him to do, but he would come and it would be utterly, utterly unimpressive, at least at first glance, that there's a veil of ordinariness around the servant. And there's a veil of ordinariness around the gospel that you have to have eyes to see through. At first, it seems rather unremarkable because you can be looking for the big stuff, right? And miss the small stuff that ends up being the big stuff when it's all said and done. It's so easy to come to believe that the world turns on presidential elections and not small acts of sacrificial love. And it's just not true. It's the small stuff that matters most. I mean, Paul said this, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Or verse 1, look at verse, well, you don't, if you have a Bible open and you can see chapter 53, verse 1, it says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a metaphor for God's power. Who is it that God's arm is revealed to? Where was God's power most clearly displayed? And it says, in the ordinary life and death of the servant. So not in the miracles, but in Jesus' love and his sacrificial death on the cross. And so who is it that experiences God's power? It's the one who's weak and unimpressive and not trusting in themselves, but trusting in God. We have to change the way we think. Because the extraordinary often seems, at first glance, even ordinary, but it's not. Let's come to the third stanza as we continue to make our way through here. And here's the most, probably the most um, familiar part of what Isaiah has to say here, where he begins to say in verses 4 through 6, He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Such an explicit reference uh, to the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. But the lesson is this. Rescue often feels like more of the same. Rescue often feels like more of the same because it doesn't always come with a change in circumstances. Isaiah, excuse me, Israel was expecting a war hero who had put his boot on the throat of, his, of their enemies. God here is saying, I'm going to deal with your bigger threat. There's something bigger that's coming against you that needs to be dealt with. I'm going to send a sin bearer who will rescue you through substitution because rescue means dealing with your sins first before we deal with your circumstances. There's a story in Matthew chapter 9, and 
where Jesus uh, is teaching in a house and uh, some friends grab a, a paralytic friend of theirs and they want to get him to Jesus and they're so desperate that they climb up on the roof and take the thatch off the roof and, and, and lower him down in front of Jesus because they want him so badly to be healed by Jesus. And Jesus sees him and looks at the man and, and is astonished at their faith. And the first thing Jesus says is, friend, your sins are forgiven. And they all say, what? What are you talking about? That's not, we, we just wanted you to heal his legs. And Jesus is saying, no, you have to know what the big deal is. The big deal is not that his legs don't work. The big deal is that his soul doesn't work. And he says, your sins are forgiven, now rise up and walk. But Jesus is correcting us. And what we really need for him to do, all of this language is the language of substitution here. It's what you see in the sacrifices of the Old Testament in the Leviticus passage that Jeff read just a little while ago where the animal there was the substitute and they laid their hand on the head of the animal to symbolically transfer the guilt of the worshiper to the sacrifice so that the sacrifice could be killed for their sin in their place. But what we learn is that all of the lambs were pointing forward to the coming lamb, Jesus Christ. And this chapter is the most vivid explanation of the cross in the entire Bible. It's the most often quoted source material in the New Testament. And it is the very heart of the gospel. This is the very heart of the gospel. It goes on to say later in chapter 53, verse 12, that he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Jesus Christ was counted as a transgressor. He was treated as if he was guilty of all of our sins, though he was guilty of no sin. And it says that he was smitten by God and afflicted, that he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Our punishment was upon him, and there's more. It just goes on and on and on. He's called the righteous one. Chapter 53, verse 11, who shall make many to be accounted righteous. I mean, it's so explicit, but again, what does it all mean? And here's the good news, that Jesus was treated as if he had done all the things that you and I had done, and if you believe in him, now you are treated as if you've done all the things that he has done. You're treated in God's eyes as if you were as good and perfect as he is. You're counted righteous because Jesus is righteous. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God and you are in him. And so all that he is and all that he's done is yours. That's the promise of the gospel. Isn't that great news? Now, there's a story that I tell to illustrate this, and you've probably heard it if you've been around here, but I want it to be a part of our collective imagination. So I'll tell it again uh, and it's just, and it's funny and humorous, and I, I like it when you laugh, so. Um, but my friend Timo Strawbridge over in, uh, in Lakeland, who's at our mother church, tells the story of his, his um, oldest sister, Lucia, when she was a child, and this was a long time ago, as you'll tell from the, the details of the story, which just wouldn't fly these days. But Lucia got in trouble with uh, her mom and dad at one point, uh, just ahead of the homecoming dance. I think it was like her senior year in high school, or whatever the case might be. Olive Fuller who was her best friend at the time, was distraught because in the Strawbridge family, when you got in trouble, there were two options. You could, you could take licks or you could be grounded. And Lucia hated, I mean, she just hated licks. And so she chose grounding, which means she was not able to go to the homecoming dance, which me and, you know, girl, if you have girls, you know, which is just when you're planning to go to the homecoming dance with your best friend because you don't have a date, I mean, that's just traumatic. So Olive was traumatized by this. What am I going to do? I can't go to the dance without you. So she had an idea. She went to Lucia's dad, Mr. Strawbridge, and said, Mr. Strawbridge, what if I took Lucia's licks for her? Now, the funny part of the story is that as it's told, 
Mr. Strawbridge said, well, I've been wanting to hit that girl from the moment I met her. (laughs) And so, (laughs) I can only say if you knew the family, it would make more sense. And so, on my life, Olive Fuller took Lucia's licks. I don't even know how many. Enough. I mean, does it matter? Olive took Lucia's licks so that Lucia could go to the dance. And that really is a good, I think, a good illustration of what you see here in Isaiah 53. John Stott said this. He said, the the whole truth the Bible is telling can be summed up like this. Sin is man substituting ourselves for God, putting ourselves where only God should be. Salvation is God substituting himself for us, putting himself where only we should be. So Christianity is the story. Before anything else, it's a story of sin and salvation. Sin, mankind, trying to take God's place in order to run our own lives, turning to our own way, as it says here. Salvation, God taking our place on the cross in order to bring us back into rightness. But the reality is, is that when that is the main thing, then rescue, rescue can, when it comes to kind of what's going on in your life, it can often feel like it's just more of the same, though it's not. That's changing you. He's doing something in you. But then fourth stanza, as we kind of round to the, round to the finish. And the fourth stanza, I'm not going to read it. It's not printed for you, but let me just say it this way. that the, Here's the lesson of the fourth stanza. This is verses nine through, seven through nine, excuse me. And it's this, that the injustice of the cross is a fountain for justice and resurrection in the whole world. So in verses 7 and 8, it says that the cross was an act of oppression. He was taken away, cut off from the land of the living. His grave was with the wicked. Then it's, but then it says, it kind of bursts in in verse 9 of chapter 53, that all of this is true, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So it was an act of, of terrible injustice. But the Bible says that death is the consequence of sin. So here's the question. Think about this. What if one who had never sinned was given over to death? What would the reason be? If death, like a machine, worked as a consequence of sin, well, if one who had never sinned was given over to death, then it would be the end of death. And it was. And he was raised on the third day because death had no claim on him. And in dying and in rising, he undid death. Just like Aslan explained to the Pevensey girls in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember this? When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack in two, and death itself would start to work backwards. And so the servant of the Lord is the one, because he came to go after our sin, he is the one who could pull evil up from the roots so that justice and resurrection can now come to the whole world. But not until sin is dealt with. But see, we have to distinguish between the content and the consequence of the gospel. That's a really important part. Now, do you understand some of the implications of this? Let's walk through a couple of them together. The main one is, do you understand, as you read about the work this servant has done for you, do you understand the magnitude of God's heart for you? Disney understands, probably better than we do, Disney understands that that substitution is love. I mean, you go pick a movie. Let's Frozen right? Only an act of true love will fall a frozen heart, right? Do you remember that? 
And at first, Anna romanticizes the advice. She thinks of, you know, the, the, the boy she thinks she loves. And then, of course, she realizes, no, it's not him. It's this other boy, Christoph. That's her true love. And she's trying to be reunited so that they can kiss and that it'll, all the good stuff will happen. But then comes the pivotal moment when, she, when um, the, the villain is drawing back the sword to kill her sister, Elsa. And she steps in the way and she takes the blow for her sister. And that is what turns out to be the act of true love that unleashes the magic into the world. And, in the, and, in, uh, and when it's over, Elsa asks, you sacrificed yourself for me? And I love, I love you, Anna, Anna replies. That's all she said. I love you. Of course I did. I love you. Well, that's Isaiah 53. The cross of Jesus Christ is God demonstrating his love for you. God doesn't want to give you a nice, happy life. He wants a relationship with you. He wants it to be right between the two of you because that's the only happiness that can really make you truly happy. Without that, no change of circumstance is going to do you any good. You won't have peace and joy and hope in your life unless, unless that fountain is fixed. And this is why this is the ultimate good news. This is the ultimate good news. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied there, verse 11. Or it's just a really another way of the same thing said in Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Well, what's the joy that was set before him that he was so enamored with that he endured through all of the pain of the cross? Well, what was the joy you were? You're his joy. You're his treasure. And knowing that will put a song in your heart that can carry you through even the hardest, scariest times, which is why we're fighting for this this morning. And that psalm, excuse me, that song would possibly sound a whole lot like Psalm 103. You see it printed for you in your worship folder there? Look there. I mean, we're, we're singing our way through these days. That's what we're trying to do. And so here is one of the songs that, could put, that the gospel can put in our hearts. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives your iniquity and heals your diseases. Verse 8, for the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him and so forth. You see, you can sing Psalm 103 no matter what's going on around you. <laughs> because it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on around you. It doesn't have anything to do with circumstances. And that's the mistake we make. We hear the psalmist sing, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, forget not his benefits. And we immediately begin to think of all of the good circumstances and the material blessings that we enjoy. Right? But the word benefits is the noun form of an adjective that describes God's overflowing generosity and love. I mean, we might hear benefits there and rush to circumstances, but David says the benefits, look there, what's the very next thing David says? Don't forget his benefits. And the very first thing he mentions is forgiveness of sins. Because everything else flows from that. Spiritual healing flows from that. That's verse three. That's what heal all of your diseases means. I have bad news. It's not a promise that you won't get coronavirus. That's not what that means there. Notice the parallelism. It's, it's saying the same thing as the, as the statement in front of it is. It means that being right with God can push spiritual health into all the other parts of your life. Anxiety and depression and drivenness and micromanaging your life to control things and marriage struggles, all of those things are just the symptoms. 
David doesn't start talking about his kids and how great they're doing or wins at work or the size of his palace or the numbers in his army because he knows that the real benefits, the real benefits in his mind were God's steadfast love and mercy. This new intimacy and confidence in your relationship with God that can increase over time until you, verse 5, mind, body, and soul, until you just... You renewed mind, body, and soul so that you soar like an eagle through life. When David thinks of the very best parts of life, he talks about being loved by God. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is his steadfast love for those who fear him. The good news that his heart is tethered to is this. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And here's why this is important, okay? This is why we took the time to do this this morning. The true sadness in life is not going through hard times. Everybody goes through hard times. We live in a fallen world. It's always going to happen. The true heartbreak is to go through hard times not knowing you're loved. And Psalm 103 is the song of a person who's found an unshakable joy. Because they know that they're loved by God. And it's a joy that's so profound that, it can, that the disappointments and the losses and the bad circumstances can actually not sting so much. And that's the key to verse 5, to becoming this person who, like an eagle, just soars through all of the ups and downs of life. And so in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says of people who know God like this, he says we're more than conquerors, right? Not just conquerors, we're, we're more than conquerors, but not because Jesus saves us from our circumstance and makes life easy, no. He mentions tribulations and distress and persecution and trouble and danger and even death. And he says that a life full of all of life is full of all of those things, but still we can go through them knowing we're loved by God. And that's the victory. The coming of the sin bearer in Isaiah 53 means there's nothing, none of those things I just mentioned, there's nothing that can stop God from loving us. And therefore there's nothing to be afraid of. See how this works? Henry Light, who wrote a hymn entitled Jesus on My Cross Have Taken, uh, just starts to talk about this in one of the stanzas. He describes the way that God's love can make you immune to changing circumstances. It can just make you immune to the things. If, If your heart is truly centered on the gospel truth of God's love for you and the work of the coming sin bearer to make things right between you and God again, if you're living out of the profound joy of that, it can make you immune to changing circumstances. And here's the way he put it. And it's pretty, pretty, pretty astounding. He says, Go then earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn, and gain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So Father, we would confess to you that we can so easily be distracted uh, because we, we don't see things the way we should. We, we don't see uh, the world um, off its axis because of sin. We, we, think, we think in different terms. We think in different categories. We, we just want, we're a microwave generation of people who just want a quick fix to whatever is going wrong in our lives. We don't, we don't see the long play. We don't see what ultimately is, is hurting us and ruining our lives is how sin has rooted itself not only in the world but in us and so we fail at times to appreciate the work that you do not in saving us from our circumstances but in truly saving us from our sins to make things right 
between us again so that we can live out of the joy of knowing and, and living in the reality of your love for us. Now, what that would do, the kind of people we would become, I mean, the kind of people that we could just go out into the world so confident of your love, more than conquerors, Paul says. We would be that, but we confess that too often we are not. We are afraid. We are pridefully, boastfully exultant in victory. We're fearful and scared in defeat and overwhelmed and worried with just the tumultuous times that we live in. Oh, would you, Father, would you heal us? Heal us at the root. Whisper of your great love to us. Convince convince our hearts of your great love that we might live nestled and settled into the confident arms of Jesus, into the arms of Jesus wrapped around us so that we might become truly more than conquerors through him who loved us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So God sends us now to be good news people uh, in a world that desperately needs good news. And here's the good news. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can be right with God. You can know his love. You can live your whole life underneath his smile. Uh, And that's what these words mean for you, that as he sends you, he says, you're going with my favor. In your favor, loss is gain, right? The the hymn said. And so go knowing uh, because of of the, the work of your Savior, the one who's worthy. That you, can, that, you can, that you have the heart of God uh, and that he goes with you. That's what these words mean. Uh, may, it just, may, it, may it make you immune to whatever might go on outside of this room, uh, but a truly good news person. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.